0: This morning, we are beginning a new series. Uh, Maybe you saw the email. We'll be looking at the life of Elijah for six weeks. Then we'll have Easter, uh, Good Friday and Easter. And then we'll have four weeks with Elisha. Some of the youth have been also, and the children have been looking at these two men as well. I warned uh, the Sunday school school teachers that we're gonna deal with this in small snippets. I tried to do a family devotional Uh, With the content of this very first sermon, it just did not go over well. Because there was no like, what about Mount Carmel or the ravens or all the exciting points. So they're coming. But we're going to start small. Uh, We've named this series Trusting God in a Rebellious Age. Uh, We live in an age of rebellion, and this should not surprise us. Every age, in a way, is an age of rebellion. I think we could agree that in our current setting... God has been removed from every strata of thinking, of, uh, and it's even seeping into the church. And as, as disconcerting as that may be, the good news, when we look at the Bible, is there's is nothing new under the sun. And so we can come back to 3,000 years ago and realize, oh, these problems and these problems existed even then. But the stakes are high to jump into the Old Testament Because as a church, and I don't mean grace, I just mean the modern church, we've really lost love for the Bible. Uh, Those of us that do love the Bible often struggle uh, with understanding the Old Testament. And I think modern readers struggle with what to do with the Old Testament narrative. So there's sort of this reader as God interpretation trying to figure out how to make these things fit. And the good news is the Holy Spirit has delivered the Old Testament to us. Many theologians, such as Calvin, would say that the New Testament gives us the lenses of Christ by which we can read the Old Testament narratives and all the content and really see Christ come to life in the Old Testament. Augustine famously said, The New Testament is in the Old, concealed. The Old Testament is in the New, revealed. Again, the New Testament is in the Old, concealed. You hear hints and the drumbeat of a Savior coming from the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is in the new revealed. All the time, New Testament writers, beginning with Jesus, um, are are telling us the stories of the Old Testament and their fulfillment in him. So we come to Elijah. Elijah uh, lived over 3,000 years ago, or no, just under 3,000 years ago, a long time ago. Like if you went back to the time of Elijah No one would know who Confucius was. No one would have ever heard of the caste system in India or who is Muhammad. There wasn't even like a Roman empire yet. Rome hadn't even been founded as a city-state yet. It was very close. The Olympics hadn't started, though they were getting closer. Yet we're about to meet a man who is very close to God. In our passage this morning, what I wanted to do was begin, however, with the backdrop, starting in chapter 16, and in just a few moments we'll read it. But the reason to give you understanding why we're going to start here is the Bible is really a reversal of our modern process. I love superheroes. I grew up drawing and reading comic books. We've talked about this here origin stories, you know, how does a hero get their powers? What we haven't talked about as much is the fact that there's an order. You, you give the guy, like Spider-Man, the power. He hones the power. And just when he's ready to deal with, you know, petty thieves and pesky people like that, Mr. Octopus or whomever comes in, these really bad, evil people, right? That's the order of it, not the Bible. The Bible starts with evil. And then the hero comes. Think about Egypt's in slavery for 400 years, Moses, right? Goliath has been bothering and annoying the Israelites for however long, and David comes in, and he's the hero. And, of course, the most famous place is the serpent in the garden has convinced our first parents, eat of the fruit, and death ensues, pure evil starts. And what does God tell the serpent? The son of Eve will crush your head. There will be a hero. And so, too, we find this with Elijah, who is a picture, of course, of Christ, We will read this now together, starting in verse 29 of chapter 16. We'll see the evil of Ahab, who's taken all the evil before him to the nth degree. And then in 17.1, where we'll finish this morning, we'll see the introduction of our hero. Read with me. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if if it had not, excuse me, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbael, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segov, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And here we go. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead, says to Ahab, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are not surprised by evil. You're grieved by it. Uh, You hate it. You want to eradicate it from this world, from our own hearts. You've gone to such great lengths, and you always have a plan. So I pray this morning we would see that even in this passage, that through our modern eyes, see that you have a plan for bringing about redemption and glory. Amen. Um, I didn't tell Meredith I was gonna talk about her, but here we go. There's an app she has that one day, I think Emily was out of town and I'm sitting in my chair and Meredith asked to download her an app and I let her do it. And she just starts videoing stuff and she brings in her sister Bonnie and they're off laughing and videoing and I could hear it and I'm watching it. And then she shows me the, the, the thing. And here's what the app does. It takes these videos and some text you type and it turns it into like a horror or thriller type movie. Right? Is that, am I saying that right? So like, you know, there once was a girl in her room and there's Bonnie and it's black and white with ominous music and text. And then, and pretty soon I'm watching this video and it's really well done and at the end there's credits. So it's like a trailer. But here was the feeling. I was there the whole time. She was doing this stuff. But when I saw it, it felt like something removed and different. How many of you have seen like Nova? You know, Nova does um, PBS, like not documentaries, but on recent events. And so you're thinking, well, that was like four months ago. But it feels ominous now with your narration voice and the way you've edited it. And it's really good. Uh, Here's the point. We need to develop as prophets the ability to have that app. Can we look at our world and realize right now history is unfolding? Like right now, we're in the midst of what later people are going to write about. The question is, are we good prophets? Are we good and, and, and capable of seeing the, the evils in our culture and bringing the truth to bear? When I was thinking about this, I just want to make two comments about evil. Uh, number one, it's worse than we think. Like whatever your view of Satan and evil is and how he and his minions operate and all those details – there's more plans than we could ever dream of. And point number two is I think almost, if not as important as number one, you and I have no idea how it's gonna come about. Like we think, oh, it's gonna come this way and it comes from this way and it surprises us. So we need prophets, right? We need people like Elijah. We personally not only need them, we need to walk in their footsteps, learning the truth of Scripture and learning how to read our culture. So that's the goal of this series and the goal of this sermon is that as we draw near to God, we will become like a prophet like Elijah. We can see what's happening. Okay. Two things we're going to look at this morning. Exposing the evil is what a prophet does first and secondly, points to the truth. So point number one, exposing the evil. Um, the readers of this passage of King, really the original Book First and Second Kings were one thing; the readers would have clearly known these stories, and so th- this was not news. In fact, Ahab would have just had a ring to it. Uh, just th- think of—I know we oversay his name, but Hitler, Hitler—you know, like the name just gets you, doesn't it? In our passage, listen to how many times the writer reminds us of his name. Uh, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned for, in Samaria. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil. Like, boom, boom. The, ra- the writer is saying to us, remember. Like, remember the evil that has gone before you. And so they all knew who Ahab was, but what, what makes him so bad? Well, I need to give a little bit of a background lesson. Israel, in First and Second Samuel, You see the rise of David. So Saul has come and gone. David's the king. David's the great king. David's son Solomon, in some ways, was greater in the sense that he extends the boundaries farther. There's more wealth. There's no war with other uh, uh, groups as much. But Solomon was also kind of bad, right? He took like three hundred all these concubines and wives and foreigners, and he just he did things that God was not excited about. And one of the things he did was he overtaxed the people. So when he dies, Rehoboam, his son, says, what should I do to be better than Solomon? And Solomon's advisors say, don't tax the people like he did. And then Rehoboam turned to his own age group and they said, tax them more. So he does and it divides the kingdom. And so you have Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Now Israel took 10 tribes under the leadership of Jeroboam in the north. Now that's important for our passage Because in chapter, and verse 29, in 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. So king of Judah in the south, Asa, a relatively good king, is in the south. But we're in the north with Israel. And we're on, and after the reign of Omri, we have Ahab. So you have this kind of, you have this consecutive numbers of kings that are doing evil in the sight of God. What was so evil? Well, If you're a Jewish person in the time of of the United Kingdom, before the split, you would worship at the temple, right? In Jerusalem. If you went north with Israel, saying, I don't want to be taxed, you're saying, essentially, I can do without the the temple. I'm going to go north. I'm going to leave that behind, and we're going to go up north. And it wasn't long before Jeroboam began to establish false religion. So by the time of Ahab... It had gotten really bad. And then he marries Jezebel. And Jezebel is like almost like a priestess, if you will, in the cult of Baal. Like, that's like she doesn't just come in and say, hey, maybe as a family we should consider adding. Like, she brings prophets and she comes in, and the intention is we are eradicating Yahweh. We are coming in and changing everything. Now, What makes it even worse is it happened with a slow trickle from these other kings, and Ahab ends up reigning for 22 years. So a lot going on, a lot of apathy, a lot of problems. This is an illustration, but it's more of another lecture, so bear with me. Uh, This week, maybe two weeks ago, I'm in the church library, and we have one. So go in there, grab books. I saw Schaeffer's How Shall We, How Should We Then Live with tattered cover. And I thought, I've never read that book. So I grabbed it, got home, read the first two or three chapters. And in, in this book, Schaeffer is tracing civilization. He starts with Roman civilization and, and he moves through the Middle Ages and different p- parts of our history. But it's also a movie. So I've got really good news for you. You can do what I did. I thought, I wonder if Amazon Prime. And it does, Amazon Prime has How Should We Live or How Should We Then Live by Schaefer and his son Frankie. And it's phenomenal. And well, I thought it was phenomenal. You'll look at it and think I'm crazy. He is an awkward looking dude, okay? Let me just warn you. Like if you hear Schaefer a lot and you read Schaefer and you hear quotes of Schaefer and then you see him, it's like when you see John Calvin or somebody, you're like, what? Like he has like a beard and straight hair and he wears socks up to his knees. His granddaughter goes to our church. I'm going to let, I'm just going to drop that. You all figure out who it is later. But you start to listen to his words. He is a prophet. Of all the things Schaefer was, he was a prophet. And one of the things he begins to do in the series is show how when a society Ceases to agree on a meta narrative, on a singular story of origin, eventually, when the pressure comes, it will disintegrate, it will fragment. And he talks about Rome and how in the early days of Rome, it was strong and powerful. And even though we would disagree with their philosophy, they all had an agreement with the gods they chose and with the way the, the um, Caesars would work, at, you know, and all. But eventually, after about the third century, it begins to become apathetic and they had just different cultures, different loves, different things have begun to erode their view and their philosophy. He starts showing example of the artwork and how it's become apathetic and boring. The architecture's worse. And pretty soon, not when we think about Rome's fall, you tend to think of the different um, you know, people that infiltrate Rome, but really it was apathy, he would say, that just whittled away at its, at its core. And so... I highly recommend that to you. But my primary thought is apathy had sunk into Israel. I mean, this is the culture that brings us Yahweh. And none of them probably knew very much about Yahweh, especially the king. And the king's job, you you have a king and you have a priest. The priest carries on the religion, but the king protects the theocracy and protects the purity of the religion until he fails. And there's a third office when he fails. That's the prophet. So remember, when David falls, Nathan comes in. And now that we get to this place where Ahab is falling, you have Elijah coming in and correcting them. But to, to highlight the distance they fell, our passage gives you an example in verse 34. So what we've had from 29 to 33 is how bad Ahab is. And then 34, you have this. And Dan, can we put that back up? Verse 34 says, In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid the foundation of it at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segov, or Segov, however you want to say that. And according to the word of the Lord, what's going on there? When Joshua leads Israel in and Jericho falls, God, through Joshua, says, Never rebuild Jericho. And so, That's the word that's spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. That's the gospel. Like, do not do this. That's the rule. That's the law. If you do this, problems will come. But this guy, who's now very distant philosophically and emotionally and spiritually from Yahweh or his word, heel decides to rebuild Jericho. And this is not, a lot of people think it's infanticide, like, did his kids get sacred? No. They died in the course of construction, it seems like because of this curse, that God is saying, don't do this. So a prophet exposes evil, and the evil that we're beginning to see is God's word became useless to the very group who should have held it tight. Yesterday, um, I was watching on YouTube Olympic lifting in Norman. Olympic lifting is really awesome. If you don't know what it is, look into it. There's two lifts, one is the snatch where you start from the ground, I'm just gonna, and you end up with the bar over your head, okay? Have y'all seen this? The other one is the clean and a jerk, okay? And some of our friends from Red Dirt were lifting in Norman, so I just tuned in and watched them and it was really fun. And as I was watching them, I was just reminded of this idea that you really need to understand principles in order to get that bar over your head or you'll have injury. But when the athlete would lift that bar over their head, they just drop the bar and would just explode with excitement like yes. So this is a, this is a sales pitch. Come to Red Dirt. When we see God's law protecting us, when we, when we see the sin of our world and we move toward God and we expose that sin and move away from it, the law moves in and protects us. And this really is the point Schaefer's making. Uh, his, his central premise in how should we then live is this. When we base society on the Bible, on the infinite personal God who is there and has spoken, this provides an absolute by which we can conduct our lives and by which we can judge society. He doesn't mean judge to hell. He means make assessments. Is this good? Is this bad? Should we do this? Should we not do that? Bringing scriptures into our mind give us that capability. And he turns to the term freedom without chaos. Freedom without chaos. So the goal of a prophet is that we would see God's word ruling and reigning in the church and even in our society so that people are free. That's the goal. And that is so far removed that I bet even hearing those words sounds really foreign. It certainly does to me at times. So let's move into our second point. First point was exposing the evil. Second point, you're exposing the truth that will set you free. Going back to Red Dirt, the other day, I was doing a deadlift. A deadlift is really heavy, you don't do them a lot, and when you do them, you gotta be really, really careful. And if you mess up, you're gonna tear your back out. And so I'm in a class and one of the coaches was there and we're doing the workout and Rhonda was just doing her own thing. I warned—I think I warned you, I might talk about you. So she walks over to me. I'm sitting there, I just did a pretty good lift, I'm feeling pretty good, she gets really close. Your bar is too far from your face, or from your shins. Well, I mean, I don't wanna scrape my shins. Have you ever done a deadlift? Like when you do a deadlift, you'll often scrape your shin and it bleeds and it looks bad and it doesn't ever heal. Like it never, for the rest of your life, you've got cruddy looking shins. And so vanity kept me from wanting my back to be okay. She said, listen, you need to drag that thing. I want you to feel it on your shin. Exposed. I was exposed, but here's what she's saying. If you follow what I'm telling you, you will not crush your back. If you don't do what I'm telling you, I've warned you, but you're gonna start complaining about a horrible back. Okay, so we need prophets to come into our world and say, I've been watching, can I, can I give you some advice? Can I lean in and tell you how God's truth is not just some made up thing, but actually, if followed, will lead to flourishing? That's the point. It's, it's gracious, it's glorious. In our um, worship guide, we have a quote by Bonhoeffer. Now, if you know Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran theologian, pastor uh, in Germany during the Holocaust, opted to not leave as many academics were able to do, stayed, uh, ended up joining a, a, a group to try to take Hitler out, ends up in prison and dying but did a lot of great writing and work in those those years. And here's what he says. We have been silent witnesses of evil deeds. We have been drenched by many storms. We have learned the arts of equivocation and pretense. Experience has made us suspicious of others and kept us from being truthful and open. Intolerable conflicts have worn us down and even made us cynical. Are we still of any use? I think that's a beautiful question for the church today. Are we still of any use? Are we still able to bring the culture around us the hope of Christ? Are we still able as prophets to expose not only the evil, but the beautiful that's before us and that can be had? So we come back to our our passage. God provides the truth by exposing the idols. And that's what we've been talking about. The idol of Baal... I don't have a lot of time to spend on him or it, and that's what it is, but it's basically the hope that through worshiping this idol, rain and flourishing will come, prim- prim- primarily weather, but also depending on which area and which bale and how you did it, fertility but really flourishing for the culture. The irony is that the region where Jezebel and her father come from, as they come into Israel, they were the benefits of the fruit of Israel for many, many years, the exports. And yet they, they export their religion, and it crushes the very produce that was feeding them. And so Jezebel has come into Israel. Idolatry has come in at a greater rate. And what we find is that right before Elijah shows up, I'm going to just read his words. Here's what Elijah says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So what is happening is Elijah is getting right at the heart of their idolatry. He is, as a voice and as a mouthpiece of God, he's saying, your thing that you're placing all your hope in is so useless that you're gonna see, and we see this later, three and a half years of drought. No dew, no rain, utter devastation. Let's see what your God can do. And that's what idolatry is. And we need to see this, that idols are like prisons. I mean, think about addiction. Addiction woos you in, usually with wonderful things, but at the end, you are useless and dying and you have no recourse except for other people to come alongside you. This is what idolatry turns into. And Schaefer, going back to this thing we're talking about, uh, his um, series, How Should We Then Live? Um, brings up modern idols and, he said, and this is 1977. And I think these are still true today, two of them. One is affluence. And he doesn't mean money, it's okay to have money. He means as a way to measure your worth or the worth of an idea. If it has money, we quit questioning it. You see this on both sides of presidential campaign. You know, Trump and Bloomberg, people who say, I've got money, say no more. Okay, I don't want to get political. I'm sure I'd, but I'd name both sides, unless you have a third party candidate, they better be wealthy. Um, thank you. But affluence, it really does sort of say Hey, if if there's money in that system, if there's money in that idea, if there's money in that company, everything's fine. We don't don't need to look any deeper. The second one was a false version of peace. And what he's trying to describe is a peace where we say, nobody can say anything. I am protected. I have utter self-reliance. So you cannot come into my world and tell me I'm wrong. I have peace from your ideas. I have peace from your influence. Unless... I wanna sneak out and receive it. But even then, I'm just really dabbling. So think of um, just sort of this idea of isolationism. I think social media would be a modern example of this. A third thing he talks about is the media and how the media can tell us its story. And he shows a scene and he shows a media clip with cops and college students and a riot. And you feel one way and then he shows that very same scene filmed from a different perspective with different narration. And you feel the opposite. And he's saying, are we aware that there is media, there are, uh, there are ideas, there are influences that are trying to woo us? And I would just say, church, are we aware of this? Are we aware of our own hearts trying to drag us away? And the point is, Elijah and God sending Elijah is saying, I have truth. I have meaning, I have reality that I want to draw you back to. I want to draw you back to the scriptures. I want to draw you back to the truth. So God provides for us truth, but specifically he provides for us a man. Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishba. This is a person. God is sending a human. God is sending this person. And it's interesting when you read the way he's introduced in 17.1, you don't have the typical son of we don't really know his hobby. What was his occupation? I doubt he was just hanging out, waiting for this moment. Like, we don't know much about him. He seemingly arrives out of nowhere, but he arrives with power and he arrives with a message. And here's the message. As the Lord, I want you to put yourself in Ahab's position. You're Ahab. You don't read the Bible. you Maybe you haven't heard of Yahweh. Maybe you've heard tales of Yahweh or something from your distant memory. But your active memory is, is worshiping of Baal. You're the king of Israel. And this man walks up and says, The Lord, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. The God of Israel? I'm Ahab. Like I'm the king of Israel. And yet Elijah has showed up and said, no, no, there is a plan. And I love this. I've been processing the wording as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Um, it's, it's another way of saying like, as sure. Like, as sure as he lives. And that's just a weird way to argue something. Like, as sure as the cars drive by the road. I practiced that this morning and there was not one car. But thankfully we have cars. As sure as there's oxygen in our lungs. As sure as there's light in the world. Next statement, right? But the problem is this as sure is something that Ahab has no idea in or doesn't believe at all, the Lord, the God of Israel. But here's the key, he lives. He is here and he is not silent. He is a personal God. I think for so many years, we have heard, evangelicals have heard, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And then they've been harmed, that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, right? Right? You know, when you eat food that has some kind of poisoning, like if you eat a taco and you you throw up because it's over, then you quit eating tacos. That actually happened in our family, right? And it's like, no, tacos are really good. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You need a personal relationship with God. That's what he is. God is a personal God. God has moved into a personal place. He's moved into this world, and he's come in the future of this time period through Jesus as the real Elijah pointing out the real problems. And in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He is saying, you ha- can have a personal relationship with God, with me, Jesus. And what we can do is begin to access him have a, as a personal God. Now, we are at 31 minutes. I know a lot of you are thinking, okay, that's our time limit. Can I have five more? We're kicking off a series. I need a show of hands. Five more. Okay, who didn't show their hands? You didn't raise your hands. Make a list. I just want to close out by bringing us a future text in James. Many, many years later, James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick? Let him call to the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed here we go the prayer of a righteous person has great power and is it work and is and it is working elijah was a man with the nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for 3 years and 6 months it did not rain on the earth then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit what is James saying to his congregation here that he's writing this to first of all get into each other's lives, get messy, and you're going to see sin. If you're going to see praise and pray, give praise, but when you see sin and brokenness and, and sickness, pray. But you're not praying in your own power. Elijah shows up and just says words that God gave him to say, and those words were set in stone. The rain's going to stop. And at some point, when God tells Elijah it's time to go back to Ahab and tell him the rains are going to start, he gets to go deliver those words. But the point is, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. When Elijah says, I stand before you, before the God of Israel, I stand, one one scholar says, that's like him resting in the assurance of Christ. Even though Christ hadn't come, Elijah, in the power of a future Christ, comes before the king and says these words. If you're a Christian, you're Elijah, you have Christ, you're a prophet, you go in his stead. Jesus is always saying, do as I do, love others as I have loved, share the message that I've shared with you. So the question for us is this, are we a loving, gospel-centered balm to the people in our world? Are we coming into their lives, not from a distance, saying that is evil, but moving in? Like Rhonda, saying, hey, that bar, just a little, a little far from the shin, I'm afraid for your back. You know, I'm afraid, guys, that if you do whatever this is, I'm afraid for Can we pray? Do we know people like that? Do we have a relationship to people like that? I think the message of Elijah is for our age, that we would not only personally walk with God and be close to God, but we would do so in community that a small, small group of Christians, of Grace Church and other churches can really do amazing changes in the world through love and through sharing the gospel by being prophets. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you that you send men and women into our lives to change us, to help us, to grow us, but ultimately the one you sent was your own son who rescues us, Lord, who took our sin past, present, and future and once and for all removed it, that you would adopt us, that you would join us in union, that you would fellowship with us and one day, someday, you would welcome us into glory where we'll see you face to face. But Lord, this, t- this world is evil. Our hearts are often very evil. Lord, we are filled with apathy. We're filled with the desire to just be left alone, to just get through the day. We can just get to the evening, just get to bed, just get to whatever. Or Lord, we're, we're consumed by affluence, we're consumed by wealth, we're consumed by success. We're afraid that if we get too excited about you, you'll take these things from us. Forgive us, O Lord. Teach us that your way is to flourish and teach us that our idols will crush us. Lord, but we need you. We need your spirit to come into our midst. Amen.